Hello. <laughs> Thank you, all of you, for being here. Thank you, Erica. It's so incredible. And I said this a year ago, it's so incredible to be this age and to see the things that are happening. To have lived to this age and to live in this age when things are happening that I didn't think could happen, that I couldn't have imagined when I was a kid. Being born in 1945 gave me a whole different perspective on what was possible and what is not possible and where the limits were. And I'm so glad that's changed. And I'm so glad to see women supporting one another in a way that I've never seen before in my life. And I also wanted to say that, as you did, I love this age. I love being 73. And really, I started my 74th year on March 9th, so I'm counting. <laughs> Nobody ever says, you know, getting old is cool. You know, usually when people say, I'm getting old, they go, I'm getting old. And it's all about what I can't do, which drives me absolutely crazy. So I just want to say that um, the downside to being this age is, uh, let's see, um, I have so many stories to tell, I don't know where to start and where to stop. Uh, I hurt my leg in an accident a long time ago, and I'm finally going to have to have a surgery. Uh, oh, I'm probably going to be dead in 10 to 20 years, but that's not to feel bad about it. What's cool is I'm having the time of my life. It's freaking orgasmically wonderful. <laughs> And, and, and on the subject of orgasms, I also want to say that a thing that people don't talk about much but is great is at this age, you can wear white any day of the month. <laughs> you know that gorgeous, sexy underpants bra thing? You know, the bra's going to be okay, but you ruin the underpants never again. Okay? You're going to save a fortune on feminine hygiene, no more midnight trips, you know, to go out to get more tampons. Uh, oh, and I can have sex anytime I want. <laughs> and not have to worry about getting pregnant. I mean, these are definitely good things that people don't talk about very much. So thinking about what we can imagine, what we do imagine now, makes me think about some of the things that I grew up with. And, and I think about how women are showing one another doors to new ways, showing them ways to escape old ways. But you can't do it by yourself. I used to do social work, and I worked with a lot of women who had experienced domestic violence. And oftentimes the women would say, I was such an idiot, why didn't I leave sooner? Why didn't I leave? Why did I do this? Why, why couldn't I find a way? And I would say the important thing is, you found a way. You're safe now. And if you don't see a door, and you don't know there's a door, if no one shows you a door, there isn't one. And now we are showing one another doors to new ways. And I see that happening across ages with younger women and older women, and it makes me really, really happy to see what we're doing. When I was a young girl, um, my mother wanted me to quit high school and become a Las Vegas showgirl. 
And she thought that would be a great living. Um, she said, you'd get to wear lots of rhinestones, and clearly I'm still doing that. And, and she thought that it would be a way to escape my father because she didn't know another way. She couldn't think of another way. And those were the days when you didn't talk about things like sexual abuse or domestic violence, so she couldn't find another way. But I had fallen in love with theater. I loved acting. And it didn't matter whether I was in the front or not, that I was part of other people on a stage in moments like this, where we're all experiencing the same thing in real time where I feel love for you. When you laugh, it makes me happy. If I say something sad, I feel like I want to move on so that you don't feel too sad. It's a kind of connection that I think is almost like making love. That connection of looking at people, being present for them, I loved that. And I loved that when we did plays, we could tell stories that oftentimes people weren't really talking about, you know, in real life to one another because we were afraid to say things, and we hid our stories. Well, I did finish high school, and I stayed in, in acting, and I won a trophy at UCLA, and I moved off to Hollywood. And it wasn't a big move since we lived in Los Angeles, so it wasn't as adventurous as it sounds. <laughs> and, and in those days, well, it was kind of the way Portland is now, where you go a block and you trip on an author, a famous author, and in Hollywood in those days, it, you'd go a block and you'd run into all kinds of, of movie stars. So that was pretty exciting. And it was exciting to, I was a script girl and I was a stage manager and I did everything that had to do with, with acting and small parts on stage. But you know the Me Too movement, all those things that you heard about? Well, we weren't talking about them then, but they were all happening. And when things would happen with producers and directors and agents, and I would tell friends of mine, they might say things like, you know, that's just Harry being Harry. David's just like that. He didn't mean anything by it. Well, did you get the job? Um, it's okay. All these excuses were made. And I often thought that I was a crazy person because I was not happy with what was happening. And I didn't want to have sex with those people. And I was afraid and it wasn't that I was trying to protect my virginity. I had lost that when I was 12. I wanted to act. I wanted to be safe. I even thought that it would be wonderful to maybe write a memoir or maybe write a play, but I had never heard of a woman who wrote a play. There was Lorraine Hansberry, and she wrote A Raisin in the Sun, but she wrote about racism. She was black. She had something more important to say than anything I had to say. And I was afraid. But I still kept, you know, acting and being in, in the theatrical business. And I kept being invited to parties and meeting famous people. And I was at, at a party once. And everybody was dressed in tuxedos and glimmery things. And I had met Lucille Ball. And she introduced me to a woman named Gypsy Rose Lee. Oh, some people know who she is. And... For those of you who don't, she was a burlesque dancer. Uh, they made a musical uh, about her called Gypsy. So we were all standing around, and a waitress brought drinks to us, and she made a mistake, and she handed the wrong drink to a man who told her she was a stupid idiot, who told her, you're a waitress and you can't even do this job. And tears came to my eyes, 
tears were in hers. I was frightened because it reminded me of my father's anger and Gypsy Rose Lee. Once again, I should mention that she was 55 years old and in Hollywood terms then, that was ancient. She was glamorous and gorgeous and beautifully well-dressed and she looked at the man and she said, you're an asshole. And she said it loud enough that everybody in that posh place turned around and looked at her. And then I went to get a drink for the man, and, but she went too, Gypsy Rose Lee did. And the two of us went to that girl, and we spent the rest of that evening sitting on the stairs while she talked to that girl about being proud of herself, about writing, about how Gypsy Rose Lee had had a difficult life and how she'd brought herself to where she was. She talked about, we didn't have the word social justice then, but that's what she was talking about. I had never seen a woman stand up to a man like that before. It was profound. And it's funny how sometimes it's just a little thing like that just transforms you. And it was wonderful. But after that evening ended, then I ran into more of the kinds of things that happened with directors and producers and, and women who were a lot like Sarah Huckabee. No matter, no matter what the men did, the women made excuses for them. But he didn't really mean that. You didn't understand. And it was very frightening. And, a friend of, and I went to acting classes. And I was in college taking acting classes. And a woman I met said, you know, you're talking about method acting all the time. I'm an assistant to Marlon Brando. And you, and you like that, those things, like, you know, you talk about civil rights and stuff. Clearly, she didn't take it very seriously. And she said, um, Marlon would love to talk to you about those things. So I met him at a party, and I sat beside him. And I wanted to talk about method acting. He wanted to talk about sex. And he told me he was a very good lover. And um, he asked me if I wanted children. And he told me, acting is, is nothing. Children are the only immortality you'll ever get. And I still wanted to talk about what was important to me, but I was afraid of him. And he was sitting very close to me. And finally he looked at me and said, why do you want to act? And I realized that he was the same age that my father was the first time my father raped me. And I had to get up and walk away from him. And I kept my back to him. But I kept trying to say what had happened to me. Because people didn't talk about those things. And I opened my mouth and nothing came out. I wanted so much to say things, but I couldn't. I couldn't talk. And I had this feeling also that if I couldn't manage to find my voice, that maybe I'd go crazy right on the spot. My father had told me I was crazy, and my father had told me that he'd sent my mother to the loony bin. So there was this fear that if I spoke, I would go crazy, or nobody would believe me, and, and maybe the entire world would fall apart if I told this story. And I tried to talk. But have you ever had that moment where your mouth gets dry, and, and your heart is beating hard, and you want to say something and you can't? And then other people came into the room and the evening was over and my girlfriend drove me home and she said, he is such a great fuck. You should, you know, he's a fucking genius. You should have had sex with him. And all I could think of was I couldn't understand how having Marlon Brando's penis inside of me was really going to improve my life. <laughs> <laughs> and so 
I was, it was funny and I was frightened. And in those days, we didn't know, those of us who survived sexual abuse and rape, we didn't know that we had PTSD. Nobody said that to us. And I would have flashes and not know what was wrong with me. And I felt more and more like I was a failure at absolutely everything in life. And I was in an office, might have been the 10th floor, and it was across the street from the Capitol, Capitol Records building, and I decided I needed to die. And I, I sat in the windowsill with my legs outside, thinking that I had no reason to live. I'd been a failure at everything. I couldn't tell this story. Maya Angelou hadn't yet written the words about there's no greater agony than to carry an untold story in your body. She hadn't written, I know why the cage bird sings. There were no voices to tell me that I was going to be okay. And I leaned forward, and I leaned, and then I would stop myself, and I didn't know why. I, I didn't want, I didn't really want to die, but I didn't want to live anymore. But finally, I knew that my girlfriend was waiting for me at another event, another party, and I didn't want to disappoint her. But the other thing was, I don't know even where this voice, or I, not a voice, but this idea came. I thought, I could do it, but if I do it, I'll never know. I'll never know how my, vice, my life could have turned out. I'll never know if I'll be able to write or find some sort of voice of my own. And so I told myself, well, I could always kill myself another time. Things could, I could. And I brought myself back in the, in the room and locked the door and left the office. And I went to the party. There were so many beautiful people. There were so, they were all gorgeous and glimmery. And if Kermit existed then, he hadn't been written yet, I would have said I felt like Kermit. It was just compared to them. I was, what? And I, and I was out of my league. But my friend had gotten us this fine table at this party, and then Gypsy Rose Lee walks up to our table, and she says, why aren't you girls drinking? And we said, we're not 21. And she either said, fuck that or screw that. And she went away and came back with the biggest bottle of champagne we'd ever seen. And she poured our glasses. And she said, you got to live, girls. But it was the same night. It was about an hour or two after I'd sat in the window. And she was just being funny. But I felt as if there was a kind of message in that. And the other thing was, she just seemed like this strong, glowing light, this woman who kind of, not, not only because she wore great clothes, but she had an illuminating quality about her. And I thought, I would like to be like that one day. I would like to feel that brave and that strong. Well, eventually I left Hollywood, and nobody was offering me any contracts. And I went into social work and, and did all kinds of wonderful work in in um, the civil rights movement and the women's movement. And I, I played a very small role in all of that, but I was so grateful to have been part of that. And I'm so grateful to have come through all that, to be here in this moment with all of you. And I had, I, <laughs> I couldn't, I, <laughs> I couldn't memorize this. So I, I saw it the other day online and I loved it. This is from Adrian Rich. 
the most notable fact that our culture imprints on women is a sense of our limits. The most important thing a woman can do for another woman is to illuminate her possibilities. And that's what, what you're doing, Erica, what everybody in this room is doing. I'm so grateful to be part of all that, that luminescence. Oh, and I have submitted two stories, short stories in my entire life. And I submitted one. The first one was 1973. And the other one I just submitted. And they accepted it. <laughs> and the online publication is called Voice Catcher, which I think is pretty cool. Because so many of us have been identified that way. Thank you all. Illuminate one another's lives. I pledge to do the same for you. Thank you. Thank you for being the light.